Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. Uh, okay. Uh, welcome, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay, hello. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin here, as always, with my sidekick friend and loyal companion, Miguel. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Yeah, I should let you guys know. Uh, we're not supposed to date to the podcast. I will just say that we are still in the grip of the COVID, COVID pandemic here in uh, North America as we record this. And so it will be only natural that uh, those, those, our thoughts around that come in. So today I have the great good fortune, I'm very excited to introduce to you um, three individuals that are associated with a group called the Engineering Change Lab. And uh, the Engineering Change Lab, you're going to learn a lot about it, but why is it that we're talking about it on the Building Science podcast? And it is because essentially building science is applied science. It is the physical sciences uh, applied to use you know, existing scientific expertise and technology to solve important practical applications. So in that sense, we're talking about engineering. Engineering is applied science. And instead of talking about the technical aspects of engineering per se, we're going to talk about engineering itself as a tool that society can use to uh, avail itself of outcomes that wouldn't be possible without technological progress in engineering. And I just want to very briefly comment on that. Engineering is often referred to as, or engineers are often referred to as problem solvers. And I think that um, that is not untrue, but I would so like engineers to be thought of as human thriving unlockers or um, you know, just realizing that the future that we can get through engineering is much better than the alternative, uh, which is probably something like a dystopian Mad Max or Elysium or Terminator. Okay, so we're going to be talking with uh, three people today. Mike McKeegan, who is the executive director of ECL USA, Lauren Evans, who is a member of the board of directors and a member of the steering committee for the Engineering Change Lab, and then Kyle Davey, who is a lead designer and facilitator for the Engineering Change Lab. So, um, Mike, we'll start with you in, you know, by way of reference to the background you're going to bring to the conversation today. Maybe you could give our listeners a little orientation to who you are and, um, yeah, your role at Engineering Change Lab. Well, yeah, thanks, Christoph, and thanks for uh, having us on the podcast. We're, we're glad to tell our story. Uh, I took on the role as ex of Executive Director of Engineering Change Lab in August of 2019, and that came uh, not at the end, but uh, toward the latter stages of a long career that I have had as a practicing civil engineer. Part of my transition into new roles was the opportunity to spend more time on the work of Engineering Change Lab, and I've been uh, very delighted and challenged to be able to do that and work with a lot of great people like Lauren and Kyle and our, our other stakeholders who are taking part in our activities. Fantastic. Thank you. And you did a fantastic job keeping it focused on the, the background that would be relevant here. Lauren, uh, would you like to go next? Uh, give us an introduction, please. Sure. Um, I am a geological engineer. I am a licensed PE, and I founded and am president of a company called Pinion Environmental. So I've been working primarily in the environmental business for the last 35 years or so and um, have been active in other engineering professional associations, whereas, which is where I got to know people like Mike and Kyle. Fantastic. Can you just, what one is another one of those engineering organizations perhaps? Uh, we've all been very connected to ACEC at the national level. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking. And Kyle? Yeah, uh, I'm an architect by trade and training. Oh, and about uh, just about 30 years ago now, set up a consulting practice to do leadership and management development work 
with uh, a category I called built environment professionals, which include engineers as well as architects and other folks that are working on the built and natural environment with the professional hat on, and uh, helped uh, found the Change Lab uh, with Mike and Lauren and others uh, to take this deep dive into the future uh, of the profession and to facilitate the learning process uh, that's fundamental to that effort. Fantastic. So I, I really appreciate the future of the profession phrase that you used because I, I do think that we are at something like a societal crossroads, not just for the future of uh, engineering, but the future of expertise. You know, uh, you know speaking of expertise generally, do, you, do any of you have an opinion on how the COVID pandemic has impacted the role of expertise in our society right now. I, I definitely have some thoughts on that, Christoph. I wrote actually wrote a piece related to this subject that's up on our Engineering Change Lab website. My observations uh, from the COVID crisis were, are that initially we saw scientists, in particular scientists from the medical field, in a primary role in helping people understand what we were up against, and scientists being called on uh, to explain what we were up against in public, uh, using and uh, having to use skills that uh, uh, communicated the details of a pandemic to the public, which I think was a role that we don't often see for scientists and engineers. That lead role in dealing with a crisis. I believe that as the crisis has progressed, that has diminished somewhat, but hasn't totally gone away. And I think that is a great lesson learned that we need to take out of the coronavirus pandemic, that when we're looking to deal with future crises, uh, we need to be looking to the experts, be looking to the scientists, to the engineers who can guide us uh, toward the best outcomes out of a crisis. And that those of us who might potentially be in those roles need to be prepared for that role. And I don't think we're necessarily, as a general rule, prepared for that role as good as we could be. Yeah, I, I would agree completely that... Uh... It's one thing to do calculations. It's another thing to convince the world that your calculations are worth doing. I guess, Kyle, this might be where you would come in. I mean, this idea of you've been, you've been doing leadership and management consulting. Have you been trying to uh, explain to engineers how they need to rethink their, their approach to uh, their profession? Yeah, I mean, that's been a central part of the work, I guess, over, over the years, uh, particularly from a from that leadership perspective, One, you know, in in thinking about you know this question that you just raised, um, you know, you use the phrase that it, engineers are are all about applied science and that wish that they could move beyond just being seen as problem solvers. And that's one of the the, the friction points that we're going to run into with regard to the role of engineers with and, and other technical professionals with regard to COVID is too often engineers and the scientists here are seen as, as people that you turn to for a technical fix. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I've got a problem, so I go to the engineer to fix it. And one of the things that I think is happening with regard to the COVID pandemic is that it's not only presenting the immediate health crisis for the for the people that are getting sick and uh, you know need to be cared for um, and grieved over, but it's also uncovering a whole series of um, problematic situations in society that make society less resilient in the face of a situation like COVID. Yeah. And to address that, those underlying conditions uh, that, that we're, you know, increasingly aware of, it, it won't take just the technical fix. It's not, oh, solve that problem, we move on. There's a deeper, deeper level of change that needs to happen. And one of the challenges for engineers and other technical professionals, scientists, et cetera, is to be able to actually 
move beyond the technical fix to helping the community, uh, helping society address these deeper problems. Yeah, well said. How does an engineer um, move beyond the technical? I mean, I, I think I'm leading you to say that's one of the roles that ECL is trying to play. What is it that you're yeah. doing? Yeah. Yeah. What, what is it that you guys are all about? Well, for, for the change lab itself uh, to move beyond that technical side is really the, the starting point for our effort. And, you know, we, we adopted some uh, an approach to change that comes from Otto Scharmer and Peter Senge, who are mm-hmm. great thinkers about the topic at MIT. Um, and they characterize a change process, which they described as a deep U. Yep. Uh, that, you know, is a, a, an important way that you can think about trying to achieve a more significant change in a social system. And that deep U as a as contrasted with a shallow U, which is where most change happens. We do just enough to figure out what's the technical fix that we can, you know, go to real quick. And we go to that technical fix and we never get beyond that surface treatment. In the deep U, as a social change process, you dive deep into a period as you come down the U where you're trying to sense what's going on around that challenge that you're exploring uh, and trying to figure out, you come to the bottom of the U and you begin to synthesize, make sense of this challenge and the possibilities. And then as you come up the U, you begin to identify, you know, possible changes that you could make, leverage points, initiatives that you could take that would begin to really shift things. And, but as well would re- continue to re- inform your inquiry uh, on the other parts of the U. So, the, you know, the typical, you know, role for engineers or technical people is to have that quick problem and, and solution to that problem in the shallow U. The challenge here for engineers and, and uh, members of the community is to be willing to actually engage in that deeper inquiry and reflection and the creativity uh, that flows out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can see, I, I can feel it actually. So when you start to f- go down deep in the first part of the U, well, there's two things, right? You, you start to get past just symptom level uh, fixes and you're starting to approach the underlying causes, which is good. And one of the things that it comes up as I think about that, I was kind of doing it while you are talking, is you start to encounter um, immense, nearly overwhelming complexity, and the problem is completely interwoven and interdependent, transdisciplinary. Yeah, so any comments on that? Well, Christoph, I was, when Kyle was speaking, and uh, I was reminded of a uh, speaker that we had at our last Engineering Change Lab event in March in Houston, and I think it also responds to what you have posed. We heard from Guru Madhavan, who's a leader within the National Academy of Engineering, and he talked about the different types of problems that we face, not just as engineers, but as society. And there's the technical problems, and one of the examples that I recall was the creation of a barcode reader that uh, you know, was a great advancement in the efficiency of retail sales but was just pretty technical in nature. But he also talked to us about more and more of the problems we face are what he called messy problems, where there's, yeah, there's a technical aspect to the solution, but uh, there are complicated systems and there are the complications of human behavior uh, that enter into whether a technical solution is going to work. And uh, so that that's what I think of. And, and I think the pandemic is an example of that. And some of the other challenges that we face, like 
climate change uh, is an example of that messy problem where there are very complex, as you said, systems at play uh, in the way humans interact uh, in their buildings, in their transportation choices, uh, in, their, in the environment in general. There are political forces working against major changes. Uh, so it's, it's these messy problems that I think uh, require where engineers need to make the greatest contribution in the future. And to me, that was the, one of the big drivers for the foundation of Engineering Change Lab. How can we get engineers at, at a leadership level contributing to these very complex, messy problems in the future? Well, and you know, Mike, another part of that we've talked about at several of the summits is the ethics behind some of these solutions, right? That um, as we get more and more technical in our solutions and our approaches, that we can't lose our our uh, focus on the ethical side of what we do. Yeah. Can you can you say a little more about that, Lauren? Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, we had a great summit um, in, in Berkeley last summer, um, so July of 20. 19. Um, and we had quite a few conversations about ethics and, and um, the, especially around uh, autonomous vehicles or, or AI, those sorts of things that, you know, I guess I put it into the bucket of just because we can do it doesn't necessarily mean we should do it or, um, you know, that you need to engage all stakeholders in making sure you are coming up with the right approach and solution to something. Um, can't do that in a vacuum of. Uh, yeah, another aspect of that discussion of uh, engineering ethics in, in this world of change was that there's an ethics around uh, doing projects in the right way, making uh, ethical choices about uh, the materials you use and following codes and things like that. But there's a higher level of ethics uh, that we talked about as macro ethics, which involves making sure we're doing the right projects mm -hmm. or not doing a project because it is the best thing uh, in the long-term interest of society. The, the other aspect of this that, that showed up early uh, in the change lives effort as we were just starting to go down that U um, you know, a bunch of the early reading that we were looking at, a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution and, mm -hmm. and other things, were spotlighting the, you know, the, the condition that engineers are going to face where much of what engineers as technical problem solvers have traditionally done is likely to be automated and to go away in the next period of time. And you ask the question, well, what's left for the engineer to do once the computers and the robots and the other things have taken care of all that traditional technical problem solving uh, that needs to be done? And rather than just going away as a profession, what it allows is for the profession to, or in the engineering community to step up to this new role of leadership dealing with the type of messy, wicked problems that Lauren and Michael are describing. and But that, in order to do that, will require the engineers to add to their capacities beyond the technical problem-solving abilities that they've had. We'll have to learn to be leaders to take on these uh, messy situations to be able to have the inquiry around macroethics and those questions that come up. So it's moving from one role of the engineers in society that is in many ways going to go away yeah. to a new role, which which probably goes back, you know, it has the potential of, you know, addressing your your wish for, you know, human thriving <laughs> and, and engineers helping figure that out. And that was a major impetus we would, all see each other at these national conferences and talk about these things and talk about the new skills that engineers are going to need to have in the future, right? It's just not going to be enough to understand the technical side of it, but more of these leadership and deeper understanding skills that Kyle's been focusing on for a long time and what he does. It's interesting just thinking about how things start to uh, 
get more and more interwoven, right? So if engineers need new skills, that means engineering schools need to have new curricula. And that means that professors need to probably from adjacent departments, right? Not the engineering department need to be brought in. And that gets into human egos <laughs> um, and interdepartmental politics. Well, it's interesting in, in Houston at our last change lab, we were uh, had the opportunity to be at uh, the Houston Medical Center. They have an innovation lab, um, and we were hosted in that space. And the inquiry there was really to try and learn from what's going on in biomedical engineering. Nice. And and one of the interesting observations that was made there was that in in a very different way than traditional engineering disciplines, civil, mechanical, electrical, you know, uh, that are and in, in very much sort of, you know, walled off inside their individual disciplines, biomedical engineering and environmental engineering, but biomedical in particular, is a multidisciplinary learning process in order to become a biomedical engineer from the start. They start by collaborating outside the boundaries of engineering with the, you know, doctors, medicine, people in the bi in biology, et cetera. It, it, it's from the start multidisciplinary. And one of the observations coming out of that summit was how could the engineering community more broadly yeah. uh, model itself after what's going on in the biomedical uh, engineering part of the, part of the uh, community. Yeah, it's interesting. Thinking about the biomedical and the interdisciplinary, it, it speaks back to this role of expertise that we had in the very beginning, right? So the very simple question about wearing a mask or not to wear a mask, you know, who do you ask? Who, who does the average citizen go to? Like, I guess they could ask their doctor, their um, school principal, their senator, governor, whatever. But really, you need to have someone that has understanding of um, aerosol dynamics and then indoor pollutant sinks and, you know, the effects of resuspension. And, you know, just as you just say, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary set of expertise to answer even a simple question. So how do we get there? I think one of the things that, the, that we have to do is to build a high level of trust between, you know, the technical expert and the public at large, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that we saw that on display early on with the COVID crisis that Dr. Fauci, yeah. uh, as he was perceived in, in, you know, in the briefings, et cetera, but, but really given his history of 25 years of uh, engagement in dealing with AIDS and other health crises for the United States, there was a high level of trust so that you were willing to listen to him. One of, the, one of the difficulties that engineers face, and it was spotlighted by uh, the National Academy of Engineers had done some surveys of what the public thinks of engineers. Mm. And surprisingly enough, the majority of the public actually thinks engineers cause problems. Oh, lovely. And that, you know, there's not that high level of trust. Now, you could take and, you know, it's really spotlighted in terms of that lack of trust and that potential for causing problems in the, uh, in the tech world with the engineers, uh, the computer engineers and, and other types that are involved in uh, the evolution of big data and, right. you know, the potential surveillance society and all that is that suddenly you, you, you actually have a lack of trust. Yeah. That 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 is a is difficult now, and that you know, if engineers are going to step up and play that leadership role that Fauci and others have played with regard to the COVID crisis, then then that trust is going to have to be rebuilt with society. Yeah, and we have um, we have a bit of an issue there. I mean, just thinking about the climate crisis, which is is a still ongoing crisis, and presence of this pandemic, there are billions of dollars spent annually by certain uh, global corporations to discredit climate science and as by corollary to discredit science generally. This is a very sophisticated kind of psychological operation, you know, like psyops. And unfortunately, it's been very effective to the point where I've heard people say 
that even the, the value of a university education is, is coming under attack. So this idea of trust with the public, it's not simple because they're now we're in the, as you say, the information age and information flows are really about what's popular, you know, on Facebook and Twitter, as opposed to what's the most true. I have, I have a question, Krista. Yeah, go ahead, Miguel. I'm hearing just kind of woven throughout the conversation. We're getting at this, this intersection where science and kind of the human and societal sense of, of meaning is, is intersecting, right? And if we're talking about engineers digging deeper into ethical questions and problem solving on that axis of human thriving, we're moving beyond what is, I guess you could say, the traditionally technical purview of science and engineering, and we're almost getting into the realm of philosophy, or at least we're, we're exploring both simultaneously. Uh, and there's naturally going to be some friction there, uh, but there's also going to be really interesting kind of new vistas that we may not have, have known before. So what, what do you guys see as the role of philosophy in engineering or in the engineering fields in the future, and, and are we at that necessary a new confluence? Here's where I'm at a disadvantage in what we're talking about new skills, right? I went to engineering school. I didn't take philosophy. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but, I mean, that is, that's a perfect example of, of what we're going to have to expand to do better. And, you know, I think of things like psychology and things like that on how we explain people, not just what the science is, but what the science isn't or what, you know, science is an evolutionary process, right? And so um, I look at some of the things going on in the public, and I think there's a desire to have a definitive answer immediately from science. And I think we need to get people more comfortable with the idea that science doesn't always have the answer immediately. That's the process of science. And yeah. I've seen that in the COVID, right? Like if, if Dr. Fauci changes from the, you don't need to wear a mask, well, now you should wear a mask, people just jump all over it like the science is bad and it's no it's just we're we're understanding more about what this is and um that's that's a positive thing i don't think we explain that very well to the public mm -hmm. miguel i've got a i've got a thought on that question of the intersection of philosophy and engineering and it it might apply to the intersection of other types of uh fields with engineering and that mm -hmm. my thought is that we probably need to start with attracting a broader cross-section of people into engineering when they're young mm. uh, right now part of this stuckness of the system that kyle mentioned early on applies not just to women and underrepresented minorities but to uh Different people who think differently, who, who are not necessarily technical nerds, mm -hmm. uh, and we need to make sure that those people with diverse interests see engineering as a way to contribute to societal problems. Yeah, right. this just happens to coincide with something I was involved in earlier today. I'm part of a uh, organization that works with high school students. Uh, trying to get them interested in careers in engineering and architecture. And, and we're giving out scholarships now uh, virtually. So we had a virtual call with a young man who's getting a scholarship to go into architectural engineering. And in high school, his other primary interest was the theater. And, you know, that ability, so he's going to come into engineering with interest in the technical skills but also with interest in, in communication skills right. and visualization skills and, and the way of uh, framing things in different ways. So I think that's a key to, uh, to this Christoph's earlier question of how do we move the needle? Where do we go? It's, it starts with making sure that we are attracting a broader cross-section of young people into engineering in the future. Which will also go to the to the diversity challenge that we have in engineering. Mm -hmm. I love that perspective, and you know, one it reminds me of of a, a question we ask a lot at Positive Energy, which is, you know, if if technical challenges aren't really the big issue, right, in getting uh, better results, let's say in the built world, for example then what is it? And oftentimes it comes down to the communication flow. Yep. Uh, it comes down to the perspectives brought to the table and when. 
And that all has to do with pe people's training. And, and we are a very, I think, diverse and um, robust team, a, a very multi uh, interdisciplinary team, multidisciplinary team. And I think engineering is often about, and the reason I brought up philosophy in the first place is because engineering is about asking the right questions um, many times, right? Because if you're asking the wrong ones, the pathways that lead from that down to a technical level of um, you know, execution are potentially wrong. And, and how do you reframe the discussion to where you're asking better questions at the right time with the right people at the table? And I, I love the perspective of bringing uh, more interdisciplinary minds uh, from different backgrounds to the table in the engineering field. Oh, I was just going to say that goes into reaching down into like K through 12, right? Because how many times do you hear somebody say, well, that, that kid's good in math and science, so he should be an engineer. That's, that's kind of the short funnel system that we have of getting people into engineering. And to Mike's point, you know, we really yep. need to broaden that funnel. Yep. I agree. And interestingly, you know, we just talked about communication. Communication could absolutely be how you broaden that funnel. To, to actually quote from your website, Engineering Change Lab is a catalyst for change within the engineering community, helping, its reach, helping it reach its highest potential on behalf of society. So you're bringing in the themes of social justice, environmental justice. I mean, we were just speaking about diversity, not just math and science. And uh, you know, to your comment, Miguel, what we're trying to create and what ECL is trying to create is this, this ecosystem approach, this sense of, of communication, collaboration, um, as we've said, multidisciplinary expertise is what's going to be needed here. Yeah, I think this is fantastic. Just to read a tiny bit more, you guys, um, from the website, this, this is, I should have led with this. We are living in a world that is facing an unprecedented combination of technological change and rapid evolving societal needs driven in large part by environmental imperatives. Wow. As this uncertain future unfolds, maintaining the status quo is not an option for the engineering community. I think that's so important. The status quo is not an option. The imperative for change and adaptation has driven the formation of the Engineering Change Lab. If it was something we could have talked about at the very beginning, but I would like to know how this thing started. How did you? How did the engineering change lab start? The start of it, we got to give credit to the Canadians. Okay. So should we should differentiate? There are two engineering change labs. Uh, the first one was Engineering Change Lab Canada, which is the uh, a, a group that started along this path about three years ago. I mean, three years earlier than we did. Okay. And we're exploring the future of the en of engineering uh, from that perspective. Uh, I had been invited up to be a provocateur at one of <laughs> their workshops. And uh, after having learned about what they were up to, uh, came back to ACEC, which uh, Lauren and, and Michael mentioned earlier is, you know, one of the places that's been traditionally part of our community for engineering. And came back and in that setting of ACEC, queried a whole series, you tried to assemble and convene a group of thinkers, Lauren and Michael and, you know, a couple dozen others, to ask the question, should the U.S. engineers be engaged in a similar effort to look at the future of engineering right. in the U.S.? And it, that was really the start of it was that uh, convening of a, probably about you know 30 people at an ACEC conference asking that question uh, about the future of engineering. Did it merit that, you know, a deep dive to try and understand that future and see what needs, you know, what, you know, where, where we could, you know, see it going. And out of that came the notion of, you know, getting together a yet broader group of people. So it's been a, you know, total bottom up uh, self-organizing effort. We came out of that, you know, uh, conference doing about three hours of, you know, exploration to a first summit in Omaha where we had about 50 people come. And then at this point, we've probably over the last uh, three years had 
you know, 350, 400 people that have become part of the Change Lab community. Uh, so we're running the Engineering Change Lab US, but we also need to give big credit to the Engineering Change Lab Canada, uh, from which we got the, uh, you know, the initial idea <laughs> and uh, brought it down to uh, our community. That's funny. There was a uh, parallel track going on to what Kyle just described. Lauren and myself and a number of other leaders within ACEC were part of a group uh, called their planning cabinet. And we, we are that group is assigned certain tasks to delve into uh, in terms of their impact on ACEC. And we were given the task by someone to look at the impacts of technology on ACEC. And, you know, we quickly realized that was a extremely daunting task. And many of the people involved in that group happened to also be graduates of the Leadership Institute that Kyle taught for many years. And so we were fortunate to come together, that group, along with and be part of the gathering who learned about the efforts in Canada. And uh, in addition to moving forward, we made the decision that it would be best to take that outside of ACEC because of the completely unknown nature of where it might go and, and because it was such a long-term effort. And it has proven to be uh, good to have it independent of any existing organization because we can totally focus on the future of engineering without interference from any other uh, part of a mission. And thank you, Christoph, for quoting our vision, various aspects of our vision. The uh, One of the core ideas that has emerged both in the Canadian Change Lab and for the U.S. group is a shift in, in role for engineers in society. And we talked mm -hmm. earlier about this notion that engineers, you know, deal with, you know, problem solving. They're seen as problem solvers applying science in the form of technology. Um, right. But that, you know, in the future, they, there needs to be a new role that we have characterized as stewardship. And that engineers take on the mantle of stewardship of technology and nature on behalf of society. And mm, that, that in that stewardship role and the leadership component of that, it's really where you begin to unite, you know, I, I think, the philosophy piece, sociology, the, so, the, we move beyond the physical sciences to you know, embrace the social sciences as, in the engineering community in order to be effective stewards on behalf of society. And so it's not just you know, being engaged by somebody to apply science to solve a problem and create maybe a commercial product or uh, create right. a piece of infrastructure, it is then, you know, particularly in the spirit of the ethical questions, to ask those questions that, that Lauren was referring to earlier. You know, it's not, you know, uh, what, how do we do something? It's should we do it? Not, not, not to necessarily, you know, engage in the project, but see, is that the right project? All of those questions, I think, much more central for that stewardship role that engineers, I think, can effectively play on behalf of society. And it's led us, Kyle, into looking at things like uh, what is our role in public policy development, right? And, and where are all the tables that we need to be at in order to do that effectively. How do we answer that question? What are the tables we should be at? That's a, that's a huge question. Um, well, I think that, a, that it, those tables are, you know, at, at each level of the system. And, and Lauren, you know, has, you know, Lauren and Mike both have been involved as stewards of their communities at the end, and if you will, at the public policy table in their uh, local communities, and you know, then you can move up to engagement in public policy at the state level or all the way at the federal level. In each case, you know that idea of not just being the technical expert, but being the yeah. steward mm -hmm. and offering leadership and perspective as stewards to inform public policy choices can be really central to the future. 
I think that's just so important. I mean, I have it underlined here in my notes, this, this idea of being stewards on behalf of society, on behalf of human society. And, right now, and on behalf of nature. Yes, that's right. Steward nature. Well, you had nature and technology, but right now engineers are considered more like stewards maybe of technological progress. And as Lauren says, like just because we can do something, should we? Um, maybe we were stewards of economic benefit for a few uh, you know, patent holders. Well, and as Kyle referenced earlier, we're we're often not viewed as stewards. We're we're viewed as uh, yeah. creating harmful things to the environment and to people. Yeah, is that because we don't look at the we don't look at the human side of things as as stewards? Well, I, I would say it's because we are involved in many types of projects um, and, you know, maybe it may be originated with engineers major role in the military, uh, in the engineering aspects of the military, uh, the creation of weapons and, and yeah. things like that. I think that drives a lot of the general public's perception of engineering. So it, it's the work that engineers are, are most commonly and most familiarly, that came out bad, uh, <laughs> is being part of. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the, the quiet, hidden good that we do in clean water, in uh, uh, cleaning up wastewater and other types of waste is, is very much not understood and not talked about and, and overlooked. Those contributions are overlooked. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so many factors in this, right? Like we do not do a very good job of explaining to the public of why a project is maybe beneficial to all those parties, right? The How it's better for the environment, how it's better for the public. So we don't do a very good job of explaining ourselves. And we also don't do a very good job of highlighting our accomplishments. A lot of, to Mike's point, you know, clean water and clean wastewater. How often do, do we talk about that? Um, it's yeah. kind of in the background of life. And it's, it's just assumed it'll be there. So I was going to go right there. That's great, Lauren. I mean, I was thinking about kind of like if you look at a, the typical city downtown, like from the airplane coming in. You see these skyscrapers all lit up and bridges and the river with boats and, I mean, tremendous engineering achievements that society avails itself of for great benefit. But it's also considered just normal, right? That's just the baseline. Of course, we have access to energy and water. And, and also in there, right, this gets to the ethics piece, right? Like what are the side effects of that city, right? The massive resource and energy flows and the pollutant outcomes. And yeah, I think yeah. that that's you know the, the you can look down in that 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 glowing city down below you and the you know as you're coming in on the airplane, but but you you know just as you're suggesting, there are unintended consequences mm -hmm. and problematic aspects of you know those choices that were yeah. made with regard to the technologies that were deployed and developed. And that stewardship role is one that says, don't just uh, implement that technological uh, fix to something because you can. Yeah. It says, you know, what are the broader implications? What could be the unintended consequences? What, you know, could be problematic that would cause us to rethink uh, how we might want to do it? You know, you get the an example, you know, the, the work that's now being done on smart cities, the first push of it was just simply to say, well, let's, you know, if I'm Google, I'll go out and put um, sensors all over the city and collect all that data, and then I'll be able to mechanically run, whether it's transportation or uh, criminal justice or whatever, on the basis of the big data that I've collected. And, yeah, that's the technical fix. But the stewardship role and the pushback to that is to say, but what are all the potential unintended consequences of simply dealing with smart cities at that, you know, instrumental yeah. level? And, and that engineers can engage in thinking, you know, the next bigger system and the other considerations there, shifting, shifting a perspective from technical problem solving in the moment to really being willing to look at the past and 
you know, think about the future uh, with regard to the choices that we're making. Wow. You know, the, the image of the city as reflecting the work of engineers reminds me of some work we did at our summit in Boston last fall. Uh, at that summit, we heard from the American Society of Civil Engineers about an initiative that they have going. It's called Future World Vision. And they have gathered a, a group of experts from many, many disciplines and first off identified a number of key trends that are inevitably going to impact cities in the future, and particularly as these trends converge. And the ones that I remember are climate change and alternative energy and autonomous vehicles, and then the choices we make around public policies. So from those trends, they've created six or seven scenarios of cities of the future and outlined the roles that, in their case, civil engineers can play in making the right choices around those uh, cities uh, that would be much different than the cities we have now. It's a really outstanding initiative that is intended to, again, uh, attract young people to dealing to getting into engineering and be involved in how do we create the best cities of the future. Well, let, let's go there a little bit. I mean, this is the Building Science Podcast. We have two civil engineers and an architect on the program today. And I love that I think it was you, Kyle, that just said about technical problem solving in the moment to thinking about the past and the future. And when it comes to building science and cities and the built world, what do you, what is civil engineers, what are architects thinking about? Um, things like embodied carbon, I think, is becoming a big one now. Is the Engineering Change Lab instrumental in opening up that conversation? I mean, how does that relate to your mission? I'll go, uh, as Kyle said, Part of our, our vision or mission is, is centered around that idea of stewardship of the environment. So it's definitely part of, of our work uh, of learning about how engineers can be more environmentally responsible in their work, whichever discipline of engineering we're talking about. We've had a recent partner in our last uh, two out of our last three summits that Kyle touched on. It's the Lemelson Foundation and VentureWell, two nonprofits that have come together to create an initiative to introduce environmentally responsible engineering into the higher education curriculum for all engineering disciplines. So we are very much aligned with that way of thinking, uh, again, regardless of the engineering discipline. I think the other, the, you know, the, the notion of working on something like climate change. Uh, we had a uh, summit in Houston uh, as our last summit, uh, our last time we got together. And there we actually invited uh, Christophe, a uh, associate of yours, uh, Corey Squire, uh, to comment and and talk to our group about the good work that the architects have done uh, with regard to addressing climate change in a recent uh, initiative that they uh, a series of their or a group of their leaders took to pass a resolution at the AIA convention a year ago, which would you know clearly articulate climate change as one of the most important. Uh, problems that architects are dealing with and, and changes that architects are helping lead and that, you know, in, it, it was serious enough to embed sustainability as a fundamental aspect of design excellence for architecture and for architects. Now, the reason that we invited Corey to come and talk to our group was to try and inform the engineers about what a sister profession was doing and to ask the question, should the engineering community be doing a similar, you know, uh, engagement with regard to climate change? 
And I think coming out of Houston, there was that, you know, amongst a number of the people that had attended the session that are members of other engineering associations, et cetera, a motivation for them to go back and uh, take on that issue more frontally in the, inside their organization. So I think it's, you know, they, that's one of a series of, as you come up the U, if you will, you start, you know, finding opportunities to take initiative, both to create change, but then, of course, it'll cycle back and we'll be able to learn from what happens uh, as we do those things. Same thing with regard to the VentureWell Lemelson you know, the environmentally responsible engineering to the extent that the change lab can support uh, Lemelson and, and VentureWell in that initiative, uh, you know, we, we can help create change, but also learn from it. I think that's a role we've talked about for ourselves, too, is there's all these organizations that are doing great things kind of in pockets or silos and that we can be a connector, sort of an umbrella to, you know, start connecting these to each other. Um, and, and build a kind of a massive movement. Christoph, you mentioned that concept of embodied carbon uh, in our work. And I look at that as an example of the techno technical advances that we need in engineering that are looking at more long-term impacts so we can avoid the unintended consequences of, of the past uh, that engineering has contributed to. You can think about life cycle costing as another, about life cycle environmental impact, uh, cradle to cradle type product development. All of those are advanced uh, technical thinking that engineering needs to adopt more in the future. But one of the challenges we face, and I'm sure you are aware of this in your practice, is the systems that we operate in to get hired to do our work. And so often those systems through which we are hired do not prevent, do not allow us to introduce those longer term thinking concepts into our work. And that's the tie, another tie to the importance of public policy that would allow engineers to work at a higher level in the future and not be constrained by uh, procurement rules and and fee limits and uh, overhead limits and and things like that that so impact our work now. Yeah. So fundamentally, what we're doing is we're we're all part of a big ecosystem of ideas, and yet there are traditional kind of frameworks and constraints that try to keep us in our box. And the irony here is that um, if you think of things like right. the AIA framework. Um, they lead to fantastic outcomes for all involved, and yet there are, you know, largely they're considered fringe ideas. Yep, that was, a, you know, that's also a really good, you know, follow-on, I think, you know, to, to the AIA's good work from that perspective. And again, the importance of learning from uh, each other. You don't just have to stay in your own silo, that we can reach out, connect with uh, the the you know, leaders and, you know, people working uh, adjacent to the engineering community uh, to collaborate with. Yeah, so integrated project delivery is real, and the, the projects can be the design of an entire city. Well, and, I, and, and it's interesting that, that, you know, the cities, there's going to be a, lot, a, a, a new inquiry about cities as we move out of the COVID-19 experience. That, you know, this this question of, you know, for all those people that are used to going into the city or the center city to work um, with, uh, you know, the, with with uh, the Twitter uh, CEO saying, look, you know, I don't think we're ever coming back to work. And, you know, we've got downtowns that are filled with uh, skyscrapers that accommodate and transportation to get there that are to accommodate people coming together to work. And now suddenly we've got this new question, well, is that the wisest thing that we should be doing? And, and so that re-examination of what we mean by city and, and is, is there. The other side of it is with COVID is we, we I think, are highlighting the 
um, problems of the cities that often are experienced in terms of the um, minority populations that are in disadvantaged locations inside cities and the disproportionate impact that COVID-19 has had on um, the, the, the African-American and Hispanic communities. And, you know, the, and, and in each of those, I, mean, I guess the fundamental thing that I would point to is, is that we need to see cities as these complex systems. And, and again, engineers are taught so well to be what I characterized as, as second law of thermodynamic systems thinkers, which is to say it's a closed system and it's mechanical and cause and effect are predictable, as opposed to complex systems and complex adaptive systems that are open to the environment and that are messy. And, you know, as we talked about earlier in the discussion, and cities are messy. They've got these problems. And to get at, you know, the, the, you know, the COVID-19 is, is surfacing and calling our attention to really significant problems in society or, you know, those are, they're clearly expressed in our cities and, and arguing for, you know, more reflection and thought about how do we address those deeper systematic problems. I'm part of a nonprofit in Omaha called Omaha by Design, and our mission is to improve the quality of life in Omaha through enhancing urban design. And we just had a long discussion yesterday, actually the last two days, around this issue of what are the impacts of COVID on uh, on urban density and, and that urban quality of life. And we've got a, a great city planner who's part of our group who for years has talked about the principle that density is only effective if it is combined with good design of all types. And now what we're facing to save cities is that good design needs to be even more consideration of public health than we have had in the past. So there, there's plenty of challenges there. We cannot afford to let our, our cities empty out or become less vibrant or we will lose all the positives that have come from uh, dense cities. Uh, yeah, past. and you know, it's during this time of COVID, it's it's quite striking that we are a public, and that public health therefore matters to us individually. I think there's been this distortion over the last several decades that says something like, "Well, as long as I can be rich, I'm rich, and the poor people, um, it's a shame they're poor." But you know. <sighs> This sounds really crass and icky, but in some ways, let's say you're extremely affluent, you're living in downtown San Francisco, and yet every day on your way to work, you're constantly having to step over people sleeping in the streets, right? Tell me that doesn't impact your quality of life. I mean, it's a system. It's, yeah, so good. Um, I'm starting to realize we need to look at finding our landing strip for this episode, um, but we've still got some time to share some good ideas here, so I'd like to kind of circle us towards systems thinking, uh, you know, in the context of public health and maybe even specifically uh, the role of the engineer since that's uh, where the Change Lab is focused. Oh, well, I think that's a big topic that we're working on at the Change Lab. Um, we have a whole planned session coming up on getting engineers more engaged in public policy and, and making sure we're at the table for those kinds of discussions. And you know, it reminds me, I was talking to um, somebody recently about autonomous vehicles and and um, the some of the position of the tech companies, which is when communities ask them, well, what do we need to do in our community to get ready for autonomous vehicles? They say, oh, don't worry about it. Our technology will take care of it. And the person's response was just classic, I thought, because she said, well, who elected them to make those decisions about our community. And I thought that's really it, right? We have this system that we've all lived with of, of how we make decisions as a community and, and how we hold people accountable. And, and so I think that's a really interesting topic for us to explore is like we have to implement these things in a way that, some, that we're still held accountable. Because I think that goes to building trust with the, with the community, right? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, engineers, interestingly, thinking about the community, engineers are typically chosen uh, to be people who showed a talent for math and science early on. And in fact, 
that kind of distorts the range of problem-solving abilities that get pulled into the profession. Well, I'll comment on the the system of the engineering community, Christoph. When we had our very first summit uh, three years ago in Omaha, we we faced the decision of understanding the magnitude of what we were taking on and making a decision as to whether we should focus on just one part of the engineering system, maybe the uh, private practice of civil engineering as an example, because that's the world that a lot of us came out of. We chose another path. We chose the path of looking at the whole system of engineering, meaning the attraction of young people into engineering at the K-12 level and how engineers, practicing engineers can contribute to that. Higher education, uh, the practice of engineering across disciplines in the private sector, in the public sector, uh, in industry, how that practice is licensed and, and the research that goes into it. So we recognize that there's whole there's this whole system that impacts the way that engineering is perceived and who is practicing it and how it is practiced and chose to try to make impacts in all parts of that system. Yeah, I would I would add to what what Mike says, you know, beyond just the, you know, how we have thought about the change lab. That one of the fundamentals that has emerged in the inquiry that uh, we've been engaged in now for three plus years is is that systems thinking is really a fundamental to achieving the type of change, achieving the mission that the change lab has has before it, and, and and fundamental to engineering moving up towards that highest potential. Is that engineers need you know the, the 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 belief is that engineers who are really good at thinking about parts and pieces, as I say, that second law of thermodynamics, how can I connect all the parts and pieces, have to begin to be able to see systems from a whole perspective. Each time you you know each time you open up the system a little bit larger, the opportunities for creativity and innovation go up. And the opportunity to understand the real dynamics that are driving the behavior that you may be trying to get at with your technical solution open up. And so, you know, and, and, and this has shown up not just in our work, but um, Mike was referencing these future scenarios that ASCE has put together. One of the, fun, one of the fundamentals they come up with is, gee, engineers have to be, become very much whole system thinkers and able to, you know, deal with system dynamics and, and, and those things in all the futures that they were looking at. So this, the, you know, fundamental to engineers moving forward in the future is to become you know, systems thinkers uh, that that are capable of seeing whole systems. You know, looking at relationship instead of parts and pieces, and and manifesting you know that that sense of system, whether it's a city as a system, and or you know, and the city itself is part of the larger ecosystem that it's that it's part of, and expanding, expanding. Uh, you know, it just becomes a fundamental discipline, almost like you know Peter Senge in his classic book wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline, about, you know, leading change, you know, and, and creating learning organizations back in, you know, 1990. And he said the fifth discipline, the discipline that underpins all of the, the, the good leadership work that he was articulating is systems thinking. And I think it's that fundamental for us as well. And just a quick corollary to that is really doing a better job of understanding how humans interact with our work and how our work impacts humans. Uh, People-centered engineering is a topic that has frequently come up in our work. Well, you just touched on something that's particularly uh, poignant to us here at Positive Energy. Our company motto is design around people, a good building follows. And we think that's true and hold it uh, very near and dear to all of our work. Well, unfortunately, Christoph actually lost his audio. He's having some technical difficulties towards the end of this. 
So I just want to take the opportunity to thank you. Uh, this has been a wonderful conversation, uh, but unfortunately it does need to end. So I'll give you the chance to offer your final thoughts. Well, if this has triggered anybody's interest in the Engineering Change Lab, you can go learn more about us at our website, which is ecl-usa.org. And there's ways to get connected uh, through that website. So thank you again, Christoph. And and I would mention as well. I want to want to make sure I call credit to uh, if if you happen to be up in Canada and listening to this uh, this podcast, um, Engineering Change Lab Canada is doing exceptionally good work in this realm as well, and particularly some of the efforts that they're making, exploring more deeply. Uh, they're 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 ahead of us, exploring this idea of tech of stewardship of technology. So I uh, just. To give credit uh, to those folks as well, lots to learn from uh, the Engineering Change Lab Canada. Well, we would be remiss if we didn't uh, include on the podcast the fact that we do have an upcoming event this summer. It's our ninth Engineering Change Lab USA Summit, which we're referring to as the Engineering Ideas Institute. Uh, it was originally slated to be held in Boulder, Colorado, but it will now be a virtual event. It will include four segments uh, on the days uh, July 29th, July 30th, August 5th, August 6th. We've got four great topics that we'll be delving into uh, in a deeper dive, continuing our deep dive. One is looking at the social impacts of technology. The second area is uh, environmentally responsible engineering building leadership capacities for that work. Then uh, challenges around diversity, inclusivity, and equity in engineering. And finally, enabling engineering leadership in the public policy arena. So you can find more information about our summit at our website, www.ecl-usa.org. And we would love to have people take part in that summit. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. This was really, truly a delight. And I know Christoph feels the same. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, Thank thanks. you, Christoph. It's been great. Thanks, Christoph. Thanks, Miguel. Thanks, guys. 